With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, thank everybody for coming out tonight. We are Draft 412. We got a special guest here at Gorman's, and his last name rhymes with Gorman's. It's Gorman, Kevin Gorman. He's not related, but he knows the old owners of the bar. He knows uh, Billy, Billy Gorman. Before I go any further, I got to say happy birthday to my wife. She's 51 today. Oh, I must have said the age, but she's a little bit older than me. It's happy birthday. Thank you for coming on, Sue. Kevin uh, is a sports writer, a, part, uh, a beat writer for the Pirates for the trip. Um, you've been how long? You've been in the uh, Pittsburgh, in the Pittsburgh uh, media. You've been doing it for a while now. Yeah, I started in uh, August of 1999, so I started covering high school football for the trip, um, and I've kind of done a little bit of everything. You name it, I've done it with, when it comes to covering sports in Pittsburgh. So. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be coming up on uh, this this coming year will be my 25th year. She's 25. That makes me fool because we went to high school together. I'm a year, one year younger than Kevin. Um, we're going to start with the Pirates. I know the Pirates are like the redheaded stepchild of Pittsburgh. So, But I'm going to make a statement here to start us off. I think the Pirates right now have the best chance of becoming a team that could could possibly win a playoff game before the Steelers and the Penguins. I'm being honest. That just messes my opinion. That, that's not saying much, but it's there's certainly the possibility that if you're looking at the three the three organizations, the professional sports teams in Pittsburgh, I would say the, the only team that is really trending upward is the Pirates. Although they certainly have nowhere else to go a couple years ago. They were you know, the worst record in baseball in 2020 and back-to-back 100-loss seasons after that. So they certainly have a lot of room for improvement. It's definitely true. The Pirates, um, last year, their start, the start they had in the season, uh, was a 22-9, I want to say, the 22-9 start. Oh, Something yeah. like that. It. It's a number like that. It. It, was, it was a great start. They were in first well, place. They were looking good. They were, you know, I think the smart people, the guys that know about sports, the guys that follow the Pirates year and year, we knew that wasn't going to no, well, we, certainly the Pirates got off to a great start, and um, in their first 28 games, well, they finished, you know, they finished the month of April in first place in the National League. Not only the NL Central, but the entire National League, heading into that series against Tampa, where two teams, the National League and the American League, best best records in baseball, played against each other, and, and that exposed the Pirates a little bit there. But the thing that I always knew when I looked at the Pirates' first month of the season was that they had... 18 quality starts out of the first 28 games. And you knew that wasn't sustainable, especially with the pitching staff they had. This wasn't 
a pitching staff filled with future Cy Young winners. This was a pitching staff that was somewhat patchwork. And, and it lost JT Brubaker to Tommy John's surgery, had to replace him with Johan Oviedo, and then had a bit of a ticking time bomb with Vince Velasquez. So I knew that wasn't sustainable, and I also knew that when you take O'Neill Cruz out of the equation, as the Pirates did on April 9th, when he suffered a season-ending fractured left ankle, that also really short shortchanged what they could do offensively. And so I, I knew that there was a, a chance the Pirates could uh, could take a step backwards. I didn't know it would be quite the nose down that it was. Well, let's get into the Pirates in this offseason. They started off slow as normally. They, they're not a team that signs a player right off the bat like people like them to do. But personally, in the last couple weeks, last week actually, they made a couple moves. Um, first off, they got Marco Gonzalez, a left-hander from Seattle. And then they turned around and they, um, they got Rowdy Tellez um, from Milwaukee, who's been a pirate killer. And he's going to be playing at PNC Park, which he's a pool hitter for the most part. Um, defensively, he's terrible. He's going to be a step back from Santana for sure. Um, what do you what do you make of them two signings? Is that exactly or the tra- I know one was a trade? But what do you what do you think of both of them transactions? I look at them as the beginning. You know, if, if those are the major moves that you're making in the off season, that's very much a disappointment for Pirates fans who are, you know, there was some excitement building off a of season where they won 76 wins, 76 games, and had a 14 win improvement in uh, in the standings. If if that's what you're looking at as saying these guys are the answers then you're saying, well, then there's not much of a chance next year. I just think they're the beginning. I think that the Marco Gonzalez trade, I kind of predicted to some people, I said, as soon as he was traded from Seattle to Atlanta, and the Braves said that they weren't going to keep him, that they basically acquired him just to get Jared Kalenic, the young outfielder from the Seattle Mariners. I, I had a feeling that Gonzalez, the Pirates, could be a player in that because I expected the Braves to eat a good portion of his $12 million contract which I think they're going to eat about $9 million worth. Telez, another guy, last year when he was with Milwaukee, the Pirates traded Carlos Santana to the Brewers because they needed help at first base. True, true. So the Pirates put Santana in a position where he could be a starting first baseman for a team that was a playoff contender. That, that signaled that Telez was probably going to get non-tendered in the offseason, and that made him a kind of guy the Pirates could be interested in. Here's how I look at those deals. If you're getting Marco Gonzalez, a guy who has a reputation as an innings eater, for $3 million, it's essentially what you paid Vince Velasquez last year. Like Velasquez, there's some arm issues there. There's a history of arm trouble. You know, uh, Gonzalez, excuse me, Gonzalez had, uh, you know, surgery on his left forearm last year for a nerve issue. So you're dealing with a guy who's a potential ticking time ball. But they don't need him to be the long-term answer. He's on a one-year deal, essentially. He's the final year of a four-year contract. You also have some pitchers coming up through the pipeline, most notably the number one overall pick, Paul Skeen, so I think it's going to probably need some time to the minors. But you have a top-five prospect in Jared Jones, and you have top-five prospects in young pitchers in Lefty Anthony Solomito and Brady Bubba Chandler, who are both in double-A. So you have some of your top pitching prospects or maybe a year, maybe slightly less, away from the majors. So you need a guy who's a stopgap until they're ready, at the very at the very least. With the the deal that Telez signed for $3.2 million for one year with $800,000 in incentives, 
Essentially, that's a $4 million contract max. That's what you paid Yoshi Satsugo. You paid G-Man Choi $4.6 million. You got both of those guys who were injured for a good portion of the season. Like Gonzalez, Telez is coming off a season that he had some injuries. He's coming off a down year. But he's been productive. If you get the Rowdy Telez that hit 35 homers in 2022, you got an absolute steal. If you get the Rowdy Telez that had a forearm issue and a ring finger issue, and was poor defensively and didn't hit, you know, didn't really hit his weight, then you overpaid, but you didn't overpay a big amount of money. So I look at those as that's just the cost of doing business to provide depth. And that's what they're doing, providing depth in the rotation, providing depth in the roster. But Telez could be a platoon guy, he could also be your designated hitter. I mean, you look at him and say, he's better than he's better than uh, Daniel Vogelbach. He's not as good as He's not as good as Santana or Andrew McCutcheon, but he's a guy that can play the position. They might be able to platoon, as you were saying, Connor Joe. They might be able to make Jared Triolo be a guy who could be a late-inning replacement at first base because Connor Joe's not that great there either. So I don't think this is the solution at first base. I don't think this is the solution for your starting rotation, but I think they're kind of the necessary depth pieces that you have to add in the offseason. It's just a matter that the Pirates still have a lot more to do. Let's talk about that because the Pirates, the Pirates have very little, very little outfield depth on the team and in the organization. Period. Um, the whole, the whole thing last year, we had so many podcasts and so many talks about Dylan Cruz or Paul Skeens. I was on the cruise, I was on the cruise train. I understand the whole Scott Boris thing, but I looked at the fact that we have no, we literally don't have any. I mean, top end prospects in the end that are in the outfield in, in our organization. I mean, Cal Mitchell got a chance, he's gone. Um, Smith Najiba got a chance, he's gone. We got a couple no, guys. I think Kane is still on the roster, so uh, okay. he's a guy. But he, you know, he's a guy that has still has some potential. I think he's only 24 years old. Here's the problem: last year he got passed by Henry Davis. He got beat out by Connor Joe essentially for the fourth outfield spot. He got passed by Henry Davis and Joshua Palacios, and so. The Pirates are looking for an out, outfielder. I think preferably they'd like to get a guy who can play center field and ship Jack Salinski back do you to, think, to a corner outfield spot. Do you, do you think that kid they, they, they uh, signed from the Twins has any potential? The Salastino? Um, no, these are minor league deals. They, these are guys that you... But he's a guy that played in the majors last year. Sure. I mean, he didn't have a ton of at-bats, but he's a guy that never hits a home run, but he's fast. He has a great glove. Yeah, I mean, you know... Hey, did, did I think Joshua Palacios had much of a chance last year? No. You, you never know when they sign these guys uh, what they're going to do and, and how much they're going to It's going to become need-based, some of the decisions that are made. So I, I just don't think they're counting on these guys. I, I actually think the Pirates probably might be counting more on someone like Jiwon Bay to play more in center field this year than he did last year. The problem is he's also a candidate to be a starter at second base. They have Bay, they have Peguero, they have Nick Gonzalez. So they've got they've got candidates. Triolo can also play second base. They've got candidates that they could play second base. They like the positional flexibility, the guys that can play, you know, multiple positions um, and not just one or two. They want to have guys that can move around the field so that they can use them in situations where if they have a defensive situation where they, they want to get better defensively, you bring in Bay in center field because of the speed. Um, you know, if you want to be better defensively, you bring in Jared Triolo to play second base or first base in the late innings. That, that's important to the Pirates. But you also want to have guys that you can pencil in and say, 
Key Brian Hayes is our starting third baseman. Brian Reynolds is our starting left fielder. Mitch Keller is our, our opening day starter. David Bednar is our, our all-star closer. That's, that's what you ideally want to have a team full of. You don't want to have a team full of guys that say, well, they're versatile. You know, like you want to have guys that say, hey, they're locked into this position because they're all-star caliber players. Before we go on, I want to thank Tim Recker. Tim and uh, Brandy, thank you guys. Uh, Gorman's a great place. You ever get a chance to come on out here? Come out and hang out. They have karaoke every other Saturday, so you'll see my ass here sometimes. And then um, some, some, some good times here at the bar. And if you get a chance, check out www.draft412.com. We have a big 20% uh, off right now for the draft party. We have a draft party at Stage AE every year. If you were there last year, you know how great it was. So, so get on there. Um, last year we had Merrill Hodge, Louis Lips. Charlie Batch, bunch of uh, athletes that are last year. So yeah, Ryan Shazier. I, I was there for your yeah. draft party last year. Ryan yeah. Shazier, Ryan was there. Shazier, Chris Peake from Panther Lair. Yeah, we had a little bit of everything. You were there. We had, we had, we had some some talent. It's for us. Had some great food. I mean, I, I was telling somebody about that. As you know, I I, uh, I I was sampling a little bit of everybody you had there, but I, I yeah, think you had Kermanis and Kermanis. You, you had ice cream. You had pizza. That's crazy. A little bit of everything. So I mean, it, it was it, in terms of the. That draft party, that was worth every penny. I appreciate that. Before we go on, what was the um, rumor about the Pirates adding payroll? And they haven't done it yet, because you already just proven they signed they signed Telez for basically the same contract that they gave last year to uh, Susugo. And they, they only give, they're only paying $3 million for Gonzalez. So where, where's this money going to come from? Who are they going to sign somebody? Or they gonna... Well, if you remember last year, their opening day payroll was about $73 million. But they spent upwards of thirty million dollars in free agency and in the trade for G-Man Choi. So they added they added quite a bit of payroll. In fact, you know one of the kind of narratives that's out there is that the Pirates haven't spent the way they promised that they would spend. Um, they haven't spent the way the fans want them to spend. I'm, I'm not here defending the Pirates. The fans want to see them spend upwards of one hundred million dollars, which is something they've never done. Uh, they, they did spend in 2016 99 plus. So if you round it up, they were at 100 million, but they've never spent over 100 million dollars. Um, and, and so I'm not defending the Pirates here, but they did promise the payroll would increase as the, as the team got better, and that has happened. In 2021, their opening day payroll was 43 million. Last in 2022, it was 55.76 million, and then last year, 73. Point, almost 3 million. Um, but when you take into consideration all the guys that they either traded or that were on one-year contracts, and that includes Andrew McCutcheon, who's a free agent, um, they have about $30 million that they cleared off of the, the books last year. Now, Brian Reynolds' contract is going to go up. He's making $10.25 million this year. The key Brian Hayes' contract actually goes down now from $10 million to $7 million. So there's a little bit of money there, the wiggle room, that basically those two are break-even. Reynolds made just under seven million last year. Hayes made ten million. They're basically basically switching places, so that stays status quo. Where where the money's going to come in if the Pirates are going to spend seventy three million is that they're going to have some wiggle room, uh, but you also have to deal with some arbitration cases. You know, you still have Mitch Keller, J T. Brubaker, David Bednar, and Connor Joe. They're all expected to get significant raises from last year. Ryan Barucki signed already, so. Right now, they have, I think, what, uh, two, four, six, eight, nine players that are under contract uh, that are over a million dollars, and that totals just over $40 million. So you look at it and say, you add um, you add a couple guys 
that the Pirates right now are projected by Fangraphs to be at 58 million, which leaves them somewhere between 15 and 20 million dollars to spend in free agency. Or I, what I expect to see is maybe the Pirates make some trades and try to acquire a starting pitching that way because they have not really been involved in the you know the kind of mid-range salary pitchers that you would expect. The, the guys that would be somewhere between say 10 and 15 million dollars. The Pirates haven't signed those guys. They've signed elsewhere. So that market is starting to thin out. So I, I would expect the Pirates maybe to make, be willing to make a deal where they trade some of their prospects because they do have a farm system that even though it doesn't have high-end talent, it does have some serious depth. So this is, this is one of the deeper farm systems. And that was the objective of Ben Charrington to go out here was to build a, a, a farm system that would replenish and then allow the Pirates to maybe add by trade. They're definitely top three, top five in, in, in Major League Baseball. Let's the depth-wise. Uh, we're doing a book here coming up. There was 50 prospects we had to pick for the book, and we were on the fence for like 55, 56. And there, there's enough guys in, in the organization that you can consider a prospect. But I guess people in Pittsburgh, they get tired of hearing about prospects. Um, once, once a prospect does good, and that's the whole thing with schemes. If schemes is going to go 19 and 5, two years from now, we're going to bring them trade and mess them. This is the. And I understand why people are coming from there. And, and people just ain't happy with nothing, and I get it. Um, but like you said, I mean, you can't, you can't sign a team here in Pittsburgh. And I remember doing um, an interview with Greg Brown the year that uh, Bryce Harper signed with the Phillies, and a guy asked him that question. He goes, Won't the Pirates spend money? Greg Brown goes, what do you want him to spend? And Greg Brown looked at the guy and said, do you want him to get Bryce Harper? And the guy's like, that'd be nice. He's like, it's not, this is not going to happen. So it's not going to happen. It, it's not the business model the Pirates are operating by. Now, the same, on the same breath, the Pirates could go out and give somebody a $30 million a year contract and ostensibly stay under $100 million for the, for the season. They could do that. that. That's not the way they're going to do business, but they, they're capable of doing it. And, and that's the way I think some fans would like to see them do it. Like I think they'd like to see them. The, the question is, who are you going to do that with? You know, there were, there were years ago when the Pirates had a young core with guys like Jamison Tyone and Joe Musgrove and Josh Bell. Yeah. And, and that was the team in 2020 that went 19-41 and 41 in the pandemic year. But prior to that, you know, Manny Machado was available. And some people were saying, if you add Manny Machado, you're still under $100 million for total payroll. And you could give him a, a, a $30 million a year contract, you know. You could give him that kind of money. You have to get the right guy. I mean, there's the problem with the Pirates is there's very, very little margin for error. Just like we're seeing right now. You lose Johan Oviedo and Indy Rodriguez to Tommy John surgeries, and they're out for a year, and it just it's, it depletes your depth at those positions. Now starting pitching is a major need. Starting catching is a major need. Those were two positions that the Pirates were counting on, that they had a guy who in, in, in Oviedo who'd made 32 starts last season. They had a guy in Indy Rodriguez who they felt like was their catcher of the future. Now, all of a sudden, that future is in the hands of Henry Davis, Jason DeLay, and Ali Sanchez, who they just signed, who spent the last year in the minors. You know, DeLay's the only one of those guys that has more than seven games in the major leagues. So now, now all of a sudden, the Pirates have to go out and sign a catcher. Which that that market has diminished, you know. You just I just saw that um, Roberto Perez, who was with the Pirates two years ago, just signed with the Boston Red Sox. Austin and, Hedges and, and Cleveland Guardians signed Austin Hedges for four million dollars, which is a million less than he made last year. And, and I tell you what, Austin Hedges looks a lot better right now 
than he did last year when you, people were complaining about him not hitting his weight and not hitting, you know, below the Mendoza line. He was he was 170, 180 for most of the season, but boy, would he look good in a Pirates uniform right now given the state of their catching. So, you know, when you, when you take that into consideration that Henry Davis was promoted to the Pirates in the, in the major leagues because of his bat, not because of his glove. You know, they lived with his play in right field because they'd hoped that a guy who was capable of hitting, I think, what do you have, 10, 10 doubles and seven homers in less than 60 games or 60-so games. Um, his arm looked good out there. He just he could not, could not judge a fly ball. Yeah, I mean, this is a guy who's never had to put his glove in the dirt or the grass. He's never in the grass. He's always been in the dirt. Right? He's a catcher, you know, and he's been, the problem is he's not a good enough catcher to be a major league catcher right now. He's, he's very far behind because he's missed it. He missed time in the year he was drafted with the oblique injury. He missed time the following season with the left wrist injury. And he missed time last year with uh, the left hand injury. So it's like, this is a guy who's been injured quite a bit in his first, you know, two plus uh, you know, seasons of professional. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of expectations on him. There's a lot of pressure on the Pirates for him to succeed. But as a catcher, defensively, he's very wrong. Couple opinions here for me. Is Andrew McCutcheon a pirate next season? I don't think that is as much of a lock as Pirates fans would like to believe. I think ultimately the Pirates will try to bring him back. Um, I think the the fan interest is there. The the, the fans embraced him and, and loved that he returned home. And I think they were a little bit more forgiving to Bob Nutting. Uh, for, you know, they kind of they kind of gave him a little bit of a grace period. He's okay, you did the right thing. It was, the guy back. you know, in, in terms of baseball trade, it was actually a good trade on paper in terms of what Brian Reynolds has given you versus what Andrew McCutcheon accomplished in the meantime. But in terms of what it did in, in ripping the heartstrings away from the Pirates fans to the one guy that they kind of viewed as the catalyst for the turnaround, for ending 20 years of losing, for bringing the Pirates back to winning baseball, for bringing the Pirates back to the postseason. Andrew Cutchin symbolized so many things to the Pirates fans. So many good things, positive things. And not just that, but he was a Roberto Clemente Award winner uh, for his off-field contributions. He's a guy who was considered a leader, a popular guy, uh, very much a fun guy. Um, for $5 million for the attendance increase, uh, for for the fan support and, and for what he brought it at the plate, you know this is a guy who has a very high on base percentage, and I, I personally thought he was too willing to just take walks um, that he didn't swing enough. You know that he wasn't a run producer that you needed if you're going to have a guy bat in the third, fourth, or fifth spot in the lineup uh, when he gives you 12 homers and 43 RBIs in a little over 100 games. But um, if they could get him at a similar contract for four or five million dollars, I think he's an absolute bargain. But I don't know that he's an everyday player anymore, even if it's as a designated hitter. And I don't know that he's a position player at all anymore. He's dealing with knee injuries and arm injuries and now the Achilles. So I don't think it's a guarantee that he's back. But I do believe the Pirates realize his value. It goes way beyond the production at the plate. I think they realize his value is something that means a lot to the city of Pittsburgh and the Pirates fans. And, and so I think they're going to try to bring him back for that reason. All right, once again, this is Kevin Gorman from the Trib, the Pirates beat writer for the Trib. Um, Kevin, what moves do you think, are the Pirates, they're not done, right? There's still going to be some, uh, in your they, opinion. They better not be done. I, mean, <laughs> I, I think if, if, they're, if they're done, I think there's going to be an uprising of the fan base. <laughs> um, the other thing with Henry Davis, 
Is there any chance? I mean, are they putting? Are they going full board with McCutcheon out for sure? It's like a well, a legit. He was instructed before Emmy Rodriguez's injury to concentrate on catching this offseason. The Pirates want you know, and I think that's Henry Davis wants to be a catcher. That's that's who he is. He's a, he's a guy who belongs behind the plate in his mind. Uh, as we mentioned, he's not as athletic as Andy. Uh, he, he has the arm. The arm the arm is undeniable. Uh, the arm plays in right field. The arm plays behind the plate. Um, but it's it's the quickness. It's the pitch framing. It's the calling. It's the receiving. Uh, it's the blocking. You know, there, there's a lot that goes into it. And so, which Rodriguez actually improved in that as the season went on. He started off a little on the rough side with the um, the block. Some of his throws were amazing. Yeah, but, but, um, but, that, but that's where you're seeing the agility. You're seeing the flexibility. What um, was not great pitch block, blocker or framer, um, but improved a little bit as the season went on. But you saw the energy that he brought. You saw the enthusiasm. You saw how he related to the pitchers. I mean, I remember the game with David Bednar. You know, I think he had the bases loaded. Rodriguez started pounding his mitt. It was like, come on, bring the heat. Like, let's end this. And, and you saw that that was kind of infectious. That the, the, the catcher believed in the pitchers, and then the pitcher started to believe in the catcher. Um, Henry Davis has a long way to go to prove that he can be that guy. Although, you know, he was a guy that, even if he wasn't maybe the projected number one pick, everybody had him as a top five guy. This, this was the best catcher in the draft. The Pirates drafted in a position of need. They signed him for um, they, they signed him for below slot value, although, you know, the two shortstops that a lot of people projected to take, Marcelo Mayer, who went to the, uh, the Boston Red Sox, and Jordan Lawler, who went to the Arizona Diamondbacks and actually made his major debut. He was a big reason that we were able to sign uh, Solomento for the money we gave him. Solomento, Chandler, and... Um, Junior, Braylon Bishop, they got five top 100 prospects because of the money they saved, but Mayer and Lawler signed for like around 6.7, so the savings there, I don't. maybe they would have demanded more from the Pirates, but the savings there, were, we're talking $200,000, maybe you eliminate Braylon Bishop from the conversation, the Pirates still had flexibility if they signed those guys for under slot, where like this past year they signed... Uh, Paul Schemes to a record contract, nine point two million dollars, the highest you know signing bonus ever for a draft pick. Um, but when, when you look at Henry Davis, I, I think the Pirates have every intention of trying to get him to be in a position where, at the very least, he can be a catcher in the major league. Whether he's the starter or whether he's a guy who splits time with Jason Delay, whether he's a guy who plays a little bit of right field, a little bit of behind the backstop, um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll see what they can do, but. Um, there, there still is a lot of room for development there. What they love is his bat. They love that this is a guy who has some serious power. And uh, and I, I like that the Pirates have some power from the right side of the plate. You know, we, we always hear them talk about, you know, you mentioned Rowdy Telez. They've got Sawinski. They've got a couple switch hitters uh, with, with Reynolds and, and Rodriguez. Uh, but I, I like that. I think left field is a little more attractive than maybe the Pirates you know, there's that short right field fence with the 21-foot wall. But that left field, if you can drive it down the, the, the line, that's a short fence, too. I think you're talking 325 to the foul pole. So a guy like Henry Davis can, can hit some home runs down that line with the way he pulls the ball. Plus, he's another guy. He seems like, a, from watching him on TV and, and just hearing him talk, I mean, he's a gamer. He's a guy that really He's actually real hard on himself, if anything. I think he's too hard on himself at times. But he's fun to watch. He's a guy that... And you can tell he enjoys the game. Um, he's a guy I think once the Pirates start winning, he's gonna be that guy that's a big part of the, uh, you know, the, the leadership kind of qualities he has. I think 
We don't have much of that on this team. I mean, I know McCutcheon is always a quiet leader. Reynolds is definitely a quiet guy, right? Yeah, Hayes is the same way. Some of these guys, they go about their business, and that's their way of being leaders. It's like, hey, you get in here, you do your work, you do your routine. You, you treat everything from a professional standpoint. Not all the guys are rock rock guys, but uh, certainly Andy Rodriguez was. You know, the thing about Henry Davis is he's, he's very much the type, you know, I, I remember going up to him one time when the Pirates were struggling. And I said, hey, Henry, how are you doing? He said, terrible. He said, is everything okay? And he's like, no, I hate losing. He's like, not everything's not okay. I hate this. And, and you need guys. You know, I remember talking to a player a few years ago, and he's saying, you know, as much as you need guys that love winning, you need to have guys that hate losing. Because some guys get complacent, and they get, they get used to it, and it becomes kind of a custom, okay, this is the way things are here. You need to have guys that come in and change that culture and say, I hate this. I don't want this. And... You know, that, that's important to the Pirates to have guys that hate losing as much as they love winning. You were around the team all last year, of course, last couple, several years. What is the vibe in that locker room with the young guys and the, the veterans? Is there, is, there, is there a negative vibe at all? Or, I always wondered that. You play with a guy like you play for an owner like Bob Nutting who doesn't spend a ton of money. Or you're out there, you're busting, you're busting your hump, you're trying to win games. And Is there a negative vibe in that locker room? Like, why can't you just... There is a weird vibe in the sense that for years, I think everybody realized they were on borrowed time, that they were here doing the time. It was almost like time served. It's like you knew that, okay, you have to get through your first couple years when you're pre arbitration, and then you get to the ARB years and you're going to get lowballed. And then, you know, in year two or three of arbitration, you're going to get traded. That's the, way that, that's the way it was. That was the culture. And so I think everybody was kind of like, hey, you know, we're building something here, but who knows how long it's going to last? Who knows if the Pirates will ever make the investment? I think to some degree that changed with the contracts with Key Brian Hayes and Brian Reynolds. A couple of eight-year deals. You created some franchise cornerstones. Um, Are I they going to do that with Cruz, do you think? Like, you saw Milwaukee just signed a guy that never played. Yeah. In the majors, Jackson, Trio. Yeah. Do you think the you think the Pirates are going to start that like maybe jump on that as well? Well, certainly. I mean, if the if the players are willing to take bargain deals, sure. And, and I think what you want to do is kind of do it like Hayes or Reynolds did: is lock them up when they're pre-arb and pay them more then. Like you know, instead of making instead of making eight hundred twenty-five thousand, you're making ten million dollars. Well, then you can start to invest that money. You know, keep Ryan Hayes. That contract's going to look bad three or four years from now when he's making $8 million and the best third baseman in baseball are making $30 million. But if he invested that money wisely, when he should have been making less than a million, he was making $10 million, um, that, that's where that, that money pays off. I, I don't know. I can't promise you that they're going to sign Mitch Keller uh, or David Bednar to long-term deals, although I think Bednar is going to be more willing to do it because he loves playing in Pittsburgh. Nobody loves playing in Pittsburgh more than David Bednar. He's a Mars alum. His dad's, his dad's from the Rocks. His grandfather's from the Rocks. This is a guy that dreamed of playing for the Pirates and is living out that dream. And, and let's touch on that fact. Bednar is the name that always comes up um, during the trade deadline because and right or wrong people say we're winning 70, 75 games with a good closer. We don't really need him right now. That's the kind of attitude you hear. I don't agree that they don't need him right now, but I do think if there's one player that is going to be desirable that can bring a positive return and is a position that you could probably try to overcome because you're not a team, you know, here's the, here's the, 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 the here's the book on David Bednar. This, this is a guy who 
had the highest save percentage of baseball last year, which made him essentially one of baseball's best closers. I don't think anybody would argue that he's better than Josh Hader or, you know, Devin Williams or even Edwin Diaz when he's healthy. But certainly in the same conversation as those guys. But David Bednar went a span last year. He went 30 days between saves. And that, you know, that was a month where the Pirates had to kind of throw him in non-safe situations just to keep him fresh. And, and that's where you can view him and say, well, this guy could be expendable just because the Pirates are not a contender yet. And maybe he can fetch you some, not just one starting pitcher, but a starting pitcher and something else. Uh, maybe a contender is willing to give up a couple prospects for a guy like David Bednar. Maybe you have somebody in your system. Maybe it's Colin Holderman. Maybe it's Carmen Majinski. Uh, guys like that that you could potentially see as a closer, having closer type stuff. I mean, here's a guy that I think could be a, a closer tomorrow for the Pirates. I don't know if he has the mentality, and mentality is a big part of that job, but certainly has the stuff. Luis Ortiz, with that 100 mile fastball and that breaking slider that he has. Those two pitches play as a closer maybe better than they do as a starter, but the Pirates are desperate for starting pitching. So, Bednar could be a trade chip. Uh, I, I think they'd hate to get rid of him because he's very big in the community. He's a guy, you know, anytime they need anybody to do anything, David Bednar is front and center. And, and some of it's behind the scenes. We see a lot of it. There's a lot of stuff he does behind the scenes that people don't realize. This is a guy that every time they bring Little League teams to the Pirates to watch batting practice, the kids go stand on the dugout, they stand along the railing, and David Bednar, all of his teammates are out in the outfield stretching, doing long tossing, getting ready, doing their daily work. And all those guys walk off and they take, instead of going through the dugout, all of them go down the other, uh, the other tunnel to get to the dugout and, and bypass all the kids. And David Bednar walks past all of his teammates and goes and daps up all those kids and has conversations, signs autographs, takes photos. And this is a guy, like I said, he doesn't just like playing for the Pirates. He loves being a Pirate. And, and the Pirates understand and appreciate that. There's there's some value in that for do you, them. Do you think he takes a would – he, would he agree to a long-term deal at, at a lower price? Or is he at that point that's where he knows – I'm sure his agent's like, man, you're going to get – 15, 16, Here's the thing. He's only entering his first year of arbitration. So he has this year plus two more of arbitration. He's projected to make $4.7 million, which is a significant raise for this guy. He's making less than a million last year. Um, I, can I see him being a type of guy who signs a four-year, $20 million deal? Sure. Um, he might be worth a lot more than that. He might be the kind of guy that could say, I don't want to sign that type of deal. But... Um, I also think that with the type of build that he has and the way that he pitches, that he could also be a guy whose body breaks down. So take the money while it's off him and stay in play in your hometown. And then after that four or five year contract is up, then you bounce around the majors and, and go to the highest bidder every year. You know, I, I can see him being that type of guy. But certainly I would think out of all the players in the Pirates, if there's anybody that's really receptive to signing a hometown discount deal, it would be David Bedford. Okay, we're going to ask you one more Pirate question, and we're going to open it up uh, for the fans out there if they want to talk about the Pirates, and we're going to open up, if you don't mind, uh, give your opinions on the Steelers and Penguins as well. They're going to, I'm sure we're going to hear Tom and stuff. And I want to ask you one last question about the Pirate team. This is a guy that, as a person that doesn't get to meet the guy, or I don't get to talk to the guy, but he seems like a great guy who is sort of lost in that shuffle as, as a Pirate manager, like People don't think he does enough, but I, I what, what is your overall opinion of Derek Shelton? You've been around the parks long enough. You've, you've seen 
other managers that are is he do you think he's the guy that can take them to the next level or do you think they're gonna need maybe maybe make that move and get the uh, Clint Hurdle type or a guy that can like take them to that next step, that next level? Yeah, it, there's been a real level of inconsistency with the Pirates under Darren Shelton and um, the things that I see as promising are the way they played in April when they had the best record in the National League and then the way they played in September when they knew they were out of it but still put on a very competitive team with a very young group playing. I mean, there were times right, when they, they had five or six. But after, after also break again, they, well, they, they take their April and their, their September and put them together. Yeah. They have a great season. So when Darren Shelton has had the talent, which hasn't been very often, He's done some things with it. You know, I wouldn't say this is a team that underachieved at any point. Because I don't think, talent-wise, that the Pirates were all that loaded. You know, I think this is a team that has had serious holes in the lineup in the pitching staff. Um, the things that I, I like about Derek Sheldon, in terms of representing the Pirates, a very good communicator, uh, a, a guy who has taken the hit for the players time after time and put it on him, uh, very rarely does he call out a player, and that's big for like a young, a young, all the young kids that got, you know, for him to stand up for him, stick up for him. Now, that that can also work against him, and I'll cite you some examples where I think um, he's maybe been a little too tolerant, uh, and maybe you'd like to see a little more Jim Leland come out of him, uh, and that's a guy that's a mentor to him, you know. Um, Keep Ryan Hayes misses first base on a home run against the Dodgers a couple years ago. Will Craig has the play where he chases Javi Baez back to home. I still get a headache. Uh, I think this was way overblown, but the Keep Ryan Hayes sunflower seeds incident in New York last year. Um, so so many incidents have happened. Uh, Rodolfo Castro with with the drop, uh, not running out the pop fly, and then getting doubled up against Arizona. There have been a lot of times when young players have made mistakes, and Shelton kind of somewhat excused it, you know, kind of made excuses for it. And I, and I think that's the type of thing where, you, because these guys are young that made the plays, uh, you have to make it very clear that that's not acceptable. But you also, you know, like you said, it, in some ways he has those guys' backs, and I think that means a lot to those players. But I also think that to some degree there needs to be a little more accountability in terms of those guys answering for those mistakes. Uh, you know, Key Brian Hayes hasn't done that. Here's a guy who has one of the long-term deals on the team, and, and when he's made mistakes, whether it's the missing first base or the Sunflower Seeds incident, or even last year when he criticized an umpire on Twitter, um, you know, those are things he wasn't willing to answer for. And, and I think, to some degree, the manager's got to step in and say, hey, this is the way things are done here. Uh, and you can't just leave it up to the veterans to do that, especially when you have a team that doesn't have many veterans that have been there for a long time. You know, you can't say, oh, well, I'm going to let the veterans run the clubhouse. The veterans in the clubhouse have only been the majors for four or five years, aside from McCutcheon. You know, most of these guys are on one-year contracts. The guys that are on the long-term deals are Hayes and Reynolds. They're still guys that are just entering the prime of their careers. So, so I mean, yeah, he's going to be on the hot seat because I think, he, I believe he's in the, entering the last year of his contract. And, and so, you know, it's going to be important for the Pirates to start to start well and, uh, and and to get off to a good start, or or you know Derek Shelton is then a lame duck manager, and that's something you don't want. All right, guys, any pirate questions out there? Any nuttings? Any nutting lovers? Anybody like nutting? No, no, no. no, no. I know in Pittsburgh it's hard to find any fans for him. We're, we're going to turn it over real quick, and I'll talk about the um 
and, and thank you, Kevin, for your, your pirate knowledge. And I, I'm looking forward to um, reading what you got going on, what the pirates got going on here. And I'm thinking there is going to be something down the line here with the pirates sooner than later. I'm hearing Josh Naylor, but I think that's... Uh, Far I think that would be, be a great addition. That'd be unbelievable. But, but the thing is, now, like, if that's the case, Telez, that, that signing, is he, a, is he a DH? Does that come at the expense of a cut? Naylor play right field? I guess he could, but he played the majority of games at first base last year. Uh, but you know, there's a guy. Oh, not, not only did he have the good, you know, lots of doubles and home runs and RBIs, but also a guy with a really good on-base percentage. The reason, I didn't, I, the only thing I didn't get about that, Chase, what would Cleveland, what, why would they even want to move a guy that's a young and... Yeah, the payroll's an issue for an issue for Cleveland, just like it is for the Pirates. I mean, Shane Bieber is a guy that's on the trade market as well. Um, the thing, the thing is that they have one of their top prospects coming up as a first baseman in AAA, and then they also just took a guy in the Rule Five draft. So that's a position where maybe they could say, "Hey, he's he's projected to earn more than seven million dollars in arbitration." Uh, you know, you know, if you pair him with Roddy Telez, who can also DH. Uh, then, then all of a sudden you go, you say, okay, we've got two first basemen who can handle that position for ten million dollars. That would pretty much sold away the McCutcheon deal. Then probably pretty much possibly, but I mean, you know, McCutcheon's here if he wants to be here. Is what it really comes down to. I mean, if you think back to like how Jerome Bettis finished his career with the Steelers, I think he played his final year for a million dollars. Yeah. I mean, if McCutcheon is worried about money. That could be an issue. McCutcheon wants to be a pirate. The pirates will find a way. Is his body Just like they did last year. Bob Nutting is the reason Andrew McCutcheon played for the pirates. Yes. That, let, let's make no mistake here. For all the criticism Bob Nutting gets, and as much of it he deserves, he's the reason Andrew McCutcheon McCutcheon's came McCutcheon's wife reached out to him, basically, didn't she? Or didn't she talk uh, I, think, I think McCutcheon texted Bob Nutting directly, but it was at her request. It's yeah. like, hey, if you want to be here, let's make this happen. But, but certainly, it wasn't something that Ben Sheridan and Derek Shelton came up with. It was something that Bob Nutting said, let's do this. Let's let's make a wrong right. Is his, is his body that broken down that you don't think he can play maybe 60, 70 games in right field for the Pirates? I, I worry about an arm and knee and now his Achilles. So, yeah, I, I, I don't... I'm, I'm not saying he can't. He's a guy who takes good care of himself in terms of training. I just don't like... You know, there's a lot of wear and tear there. And, and this is a guy who's played, what, 15, 16 years now. So, um, you know, he's going to be 37. I, I, I don't know that he's an everyday player. I don't know that he's a regular position player. I'm not saying he can't go out there and do it. But, but there's this is a guy who, after every game, had ice packs on his knee and his elbow and then ended up, you know, with a slight tear in his Achilles. And I think he'd probably been playing through that. I think that was something that didn't happen just that Yeah, because even when he did it, he, he said, oh, he, he told everybody, didn't he tell the media it was fine. He was going to be back. He's like, then it became I think, like I said, he, he knew something was wrong. I, I think he was hoping he could play through it. You know, the, the truth is, Andrew McCutcheon's one home run shy of 300. I think the Pirates would love for him to get to that number wearing black and gold. So I think they'll find a way to make it happen. I just don't know that he should be as much of a prominent fixture in their lineup as he was last year. All right, Spanky and Michael Urbani. I know you guys are, um, I follow your Facebooks and you are. You love Mike Tom. I know. I know. Uh, I think every time the Steelers play a game, Spanky has hashtag Fire Tomlin. Is that correct? On <laughs> every The Steelers are seven and six, and if you look at their stats on offense and on defense, for them to be seven and six is insanity. They're ranked like twenty eighth or lower in basically every category in offense and on defense. And I understand the defense is because they're on the field all the time. Um, Kevin, in, in your opinion, just 
being a sports fan, I know you're following the Pirates close, close, but I know you watch the Steelers. You've been involved in everything. Is Tomlin the problem here? Do you think he's, it's, I, I made this statement the other day, I think he's stale. Like, it's just stale. Like, oh, how an athlete does real well for somewhere for 10 years and all of a sudden you're like, ah, I just, he just needs, he needs a change of scenery. Do you think that's what Tomlin's going through? I think there's a lot of issues with Tom. I think stale is, is the fairest way to put it. Um, I, I think the Pirates, the Steelers have been stale since you know that loss to the Jaguars in the playoffs a couple years ago. That some, when you think about some of the teams that they've, some of the quarterbacks that they've lost to in the postseason over the past what you know since 2011, since, since their last Super Bowl appearance. Tim Tebow. <laughs> it's not just Tim Tebow. It's Tim Tebow and Blake Bortles and Baker Mayfield. Uh, almost to A.J. McCarron. I mean, if not, if not for a couple of silly penalties on the Bengals, they lose to A.J. McCarron, who was on the practice squad for the Bengals uh, this year. You know, their victories in the playoffs. Can you name the quarterbacks that the Steelers beat in the playoffs that their last, like, three or four playoff victories? I mean, we're talking about Matt Moore with the Dolphins and Alex Smith with the Chiefs and... Um, Who's, who's the other one? There's, I mean, they're, they're not beating great players in the playoffs either. Um, there's one other one that's slipping my mind right now, but they're, they're not beating great quarterbacks. They're not beating great teams. Uh, you know, they lost at home to Baker Mayfield, the Browns, when the Browns didn't have their head coach. Um, you know, this, is a, this is a team that has underachieved and, and did so when they had a great offense. When they had three Pro Bowl offensive linemen and a Pro Bowl quarterback, and maybe the best running back and best wide receiver in football. Yeah, Bell and Brown were. I mean, Ben Bell and Brown. That was. I can't believe they didn't. That's that's the time I get the criticism. The criticism of Mike Tomlin that they couldn't win with that that much talent on the offensive side. Yeah, I mean, but it's like you know they had they won when they had great defenses, but the guy who's calling the defense is Tomlin. His offensive coordinators have been pretty abysmal the last couple of years. Um, there's a lot of reasons you could build a case against Mike Tomlin. Um, not just who he's hired as offensive coordinator, but also that you don't see too many of his position coaches move on. Yeah, there's no coaching tree whatsoever, thank you. And uh, But you don't see many of his guys' position coaches move on to better jobs even. You don't, you don't see teams coming after Tomlin assistants and saying, "Oh, we want to get this guy. He's an innovator, or he's a great coach." Um, you, you don't, you don't see much of that. You also don't see that the Steelers, you know, the, when they sign guys that have played in other organizations, it seems like those guys have trouble adapting to playing for the Steelers. Yet they go on elsewhere and play well. Uh, you know, Melvin Ingram being an example. But some of these guys, they come in and they can't seem to play for the Steelers. Uh, you know, you think about all the middle linebackers, inside linebackers that they've drafted, that they've signed. Uh, whether you know it was John Bostic, or it's, it's a, there's there's a lot of guys that have gone on and done better elsewhere. So that, that's troubling, a troubling side to me. Somehow he continues to, to put on winning teams, which I think is difficult to do. I, I think a lot of I think there's a that that shows the guy can coach that, that his teams are competitive every single year. I agree with that. Like I said, on paper, if you said this team has seven wins right now, and look at the stats that they've accumulated, it's, it's got to be a little bit of coaching. Which, which troubling to me more than any of the other things I just laid out is the attitude that we're seeing and the lack of the, the lack of 
attention to detail, the lack of passion that we're seeing from guys like Deontay Johnson and George Pickens. I understand they're frustrated that they're not as involved in the passing game or it's not as effective as they want it to be, but you're seeing guys who aren't blocking or aren't running routes on plays that aren't called for them. That you know the, the, the play with Deontay Johnson that he's received so much criticism for on the Jalen Warren fumble, not only did he not run out a route, not only did he not block the defender, he didn't even have his mouthpiece on. Like, that's the most troubling sign to me. There's a guy who's just being defiant and saying, I don't care. The body language bothers me. The, the lack of attention to detail bothers me. The, the way these guys are openly criticizing their coaches and their teammates bothers me. And, and when you talk about leadership, I think there are guys that step up and say the right thing. Cam Hayward. Cam Hayward. Well, Cam Hayward has been accused of being a mouthpiece for Tomlin sometimes. That he, he says what Tomlin wants you to say. Uh, Minka Fitzpatrick is the kind of guy who's he's the guy who's telling you the real the real dirt. And I, I think people in that organization respect him uh, for not only the things that he says, but how he's willing to hold his teammates in check. But for whatever reason. That's not translating to the offensive side of the ball. There's not a lot of leadership there. And, and But this isn't a problem that's new under Tomlin. This is something that when I covered the Steelers a few years ago, I talked to a very respected veteran who said to me, the problem on this team, because it was a very selfish team that missed the playoffs back in 2018, he said the problem with this team is we all know there's different sets of roles for different sets of players. Like with Deontay Johnson, why he didn't get benched or something like that. This was back when they had Ben Roethlisberger and Antonio Brown. And this player looked and read in the locker room. He looked to his left in the corner where Ben would be dressing, and he looked to the right in the one corner where Antonio Brown would be dressing. He said, there's no rules when it comes to certain players. And he said, and that's a problem. You can't have different sets. Of, you can have different sets of rules, but you can't have guys who don't answer to anyone. You can't have that. And so this has been a long-standing problem with Tomlin is that he kind of, you know, flies by the seat of his pants. And some people have given him credit for how he handled Antonio Brown and how he handled Ben Roethlisberger and the egos and the drama and the divas. But he also allowed that to become a problem in his team and inside of his locker room. And I even think back to when Le'Veon Bell sat out the whole season. In mid-season, everybody expected him to come back. They thought, okay, he's going to sit out a certain number of games and he's going to come back. And then his, his agent found a loophole that allowed him to sit out the whole season and become a free agent and, and that they wouldn't be able to put the franchise tag on. And then his teammates very infamously looted his locker. And they did it during the open media session. And I thought that was kind of a disrespectful thing for a guy who had been an all-pro player for you, who had been a, you know, the bell cow, the workhorse, who had 400 touches in a season. Um, and he basically was saying, hey, I'm not going to allow the Steelers to, to treat me the way they're treating me. I'm standing up for myself. I'm standing up for not just myself, but every player at my position, the running back position, because I want a long-term deal with guaranteed money. And, uh, and, and his teammate, that his teammates did that, and then all of the veterans sat back and watched the young players do it, steal all of the shoes out of his locker and everything. That, to me, was a sign of like kind of a, letting the inmates run the asylum a little bit. And, and sometimes Tomlin does that. To his own detriment. I mean, they just, they just, had, they just had an NFL um, survey uh, came out, I think, two or three weeks ago. And um, the survey came out, and Tomlin, player, it was a player survey, and, uh, who, 
players voted on who they'd want to play for the most in the NFL. He won by, I want to say, 15 to 20 percent over the next two years. And it, and do you think that has a lot to do with players telling other players like, hey, you know, he, he basically. I think, I think for one, Tomlin is respected as a good coach around the league. Mm -hmm. I don't think this is a guy that is a faker. I don't think he's trying to fake his way through it. Like there are some guys out there that are in over their heads and trying to, and trying to get by. I don't think he, he has a long-term track record of success. I think the other part of it is that he's, he's pretty blunt with his players. I think he's supportive of them, but he also calls them out when necessary. It's just certain players are kind of given carte blanche. You know, and those are guys that are the, the best players on the team. Those aren't, you know, typically the, the guys that are the worst guys. Um, you know, I, I think, I, yeah, I, I would imagine players are going to want to play for a guy like that. He's a great communicator, is an effective leader, and um, makes football fun. You know, the Steelers, it's not like they, you know, it's not like they check out and dread it. And certainly there's some problems on this offense. Uh, and I think the problems go way beyond the quarterback position. I think the offensive line is overrated. I think a lot of these skilled players aren't nearly as good as they think they are. I, I think it's kind of like guys are resting on their reputations of either what they did years ago or what they did in college or whatever. But I don't look at the Steelers and say they have one pro bowl caliber player on that offense. And that's a problem when you don't have anybody that's even in the conversation. I made a statement at the last podcast. And I, I'll stick by this. I don't think that Deontay Johnson needs to come back. And I don't think that, um, I think Najee Harris, I know he'll be back for one more year, but I don't, I don't give him that fifth year um, extension. I mean, Warren's proven that you can go out and get another running back in the third or fourth round or, or pick up a veteran free agent that can mix with him. Uh, the, the running difference is when Warren gets the ball, it's four yards automatic. It's, he's heads down, he's running hard. Najee's what, uh, four inches, five inches taller, maybe 25 pounds, uh, maybe, maybe 15 pounds heavier, but... The guy doesn't, he, he does Levy on Bell stuff. He does that little juke and that little patient thing that can't hit the hole at all. And he's, the one, he's the one guy that drives me insane watching him play. He's a big guy in Alabama. He can run people over. Um, I just think that guy was a guy that we he also had room to run at Alabama. I mean, that's true. I feel like the Steelers' offensive line is relatively overrated. Um, I think it's hard when. Hey, here's another criticism you could say of, of Tomlin, although I think it's more reflective of the NFL and the way things are structured under the salary cap, is that when you go out and you pay T.J. Watt, Minka Fitzpatrick, Cam Hayward, Deontay Johnson, it's uh, a big, big contracts. And then you go out and you pay a couple other guys uh, free agent deals. You're going to have a team that's top-heavy in terms of you're paying big salaries, so you're going to have, you're not going to be able to pay certain people. They're, you're going to lose guys. But I also think that, you know, you think back to when the Steelers were winning Super Bowls. Um, they used to be able to draft guys and have them be really good backups. And then when somebody was willing to leave, uh, whether it was through free agency or whatever, uh, when somebody left, you had their replacement at the ready. And you don't see that anymore with the Steelers. You don't see them drafting and developing guys and having guys that are great special teams players, solid backups, who become starters. And, and you, you think about it. Back in the day, and I, and I realize the NFL has changed dramatically, but you think about back when Jason Gilman, Joey Porter, and James Harrison all came in, Greg Lloyd came in as draft picks who were backups, who became starters, who became stars. And, and you don't see that with the Steelers very often anymore. And, and I think that's a concern. I don't know whether to put that on the, the, the team, whether it's on the position players or their coaches, but uh, it's certainly... 
that's something that the continuity there, that drafting and developing from within, that the Steelers have had to go through free agency to fill their needs, whether it's at linebacker or on the offensive line, has been a problem. And I'm hoping that the uh, last year's draft, we talked about this draft 4 one but the last year's draft for the Steelers actually was, it's still in my mind an A, A minus. It's, it's a great draft. I mean, Broderick Jones will be the left tackle here uh, in the future. Herbig was a guy that nobody expected what he's doing. And I know he's just a backup right now, but he might be that guy you're talking about, a guy that can eventually become a starter. Um, Benton, um, Joey, Joey Porter's been a, he's been a shutdown. I mean, yeah, he's been already their best corner. Yeah, it's, he's, I mean, he, on, arguably one of the best corners in football. If you look at the, at the, the, the percentage of passes he's coming, is no one's, no one's even thrown as well. That illustrates my point. Now, Herbig is the kind of guy that if he develops the way you hope, that maybe allows you to move on from one of the other outside linebackers a year or two down the road. Uh, but they just signed Wiley and Heisman. So yeah. I don't know, you know, maybe he's just your third linebacker, and in case of an injury, you're in a good a good position, but you know, that Joey Porter is able to step in midway through his first season and be your best cornerback tells you about the cornerback depth. And it also, like, you think back to Ben Roethlisberger is obviously the exception here with, with stepping in as a rookie, but like Troy Palomalu barely got on the field as a rookie. And, and sometimes it takes a year or so for those guys to get their feet wet and to develop. Uh, the, the guys are stepping in and starting right away. And this isn't a new phenomenon. You think back to that draft, I don't know if it was 2016, but the draft that they had where they had Artie Burns, Sean Davis, and Javon Hargrave all stepped in as rookies and earned starting positions right away. That told you that the depth wasn't there, that those guys were able to step in and be key contributors, maybe even before they were ready. And I think it hurt the development of all, of at least the first two, both quarterbacks. Hargrave's been good. The problem is Hargrave, this is this was my problem with Javon Hargrave, who I liked, uh, is that he's more of a pass rusher than he is a run stuffer. And in the Steelers system, you need that that nose to be a guy who stuffs the run and can take on double teams. And, and that's, and that's, yeah, Casey Hampton. That, the problem is that's also a two-down guy nowadays in this, in this day and age. Uh, but but that's, he was never that guy, and I think that's why the Steelers allowed him to leave. Do you agree that people in Pittsburgh should have a little bit more patience with Kenny Pickett? Now that there's a new offensive coordinator, um, chances are they're going to hire one over the offseason or, or keep these these two. I, I thought they're going to keep this tandem, do you agree? I, I, I would think they would bring somebody in and start over. I, I, would, I would think that they're, they're going to have to find a, a better solution. I, I think Kenny Pickett, to some degree, is a victim of the Steelers maybe realizing that Matt Canada wasn't working, but also not wanting to change coordinators after one year with a new starting quarterback. Uh, but Kenny Pickett has to play better. This is a very much a, what have you done for me lately league. And, and quarterbacks have to throw touchdowns, and he doesn't throw enough of them. Um, I, I don't, I haven't, like a lot of people, lost faith in Kenny Pickett. But he has to play better. And he has to make better decisions. And he has to throw more touchdown passes for, for this guy to solidify his spot in the starting lineup. We've seen way too many quarterbacks drafted way higher than Kenny Pickett who were on shorter leashes. I mean, think about some of the guys around the league. One of them is the Steelers' backup quarterback who was a top-five pick. Didn't get a very long leash with the Bears. But, I mean, Justin Fields, you think about, you know, Daniel, Daniel Jones right now, that injury is killing them because Tommy DeVito's look good. I mean, you, you look around the league and... You know, Trey Lance really never got the chance because Brock Purdy played so well. So I, I don't think Kenny Pickett should feel comfortable with anything other than knowing that his backups are worse than him. 
You got it's teams like Trubisky the, and Mason Rudolph aren't going to give you an improvement of the quarterback. You position. got teams like the Jets that pretty much draft a new quarterback every two years. At least, but they don't get. You're, you're right. There's a lot of quarterbacks in the league that are on on very short leashes. I just think that we see slight improvement in that first game after Canada was gone. And I know it's still the same place when I heard. Just there's a little bit more play action, which opened things up for them down the middle. But I say give them at least. My my talk with people, I talk in at least the first half of next season. If it's a new coordinator. If it's, uh, I, I don't. I, I think there might be some people on the hot seat involved in that. You know, I, I think when you look at it, this goes back to the kind of the complacency where, for whatever reason, Tomlin seems to be have a preference for guys who have played in his system before, over maybe the talent that he, that he'd rather welcome back a Sean Spencer inside mm -hmm. linebacker. Then go out and get somebody who could be an upgrade when you lose a Ryan Chazier. Uh, the Steelers had enough evidence in Mason Rudolph's play and in Mitch Trubisky's play to know that maybe to know that maybe they should have upgraded the backup quarterback position going into the season, given what they'd seen from Kenny Pickett, and that they brought both of those guys back and, and didn't do enough to make things easier on Kenny Pickett. I mean, for one, establishing the run game. Before you worry about passing the ball, uh, you know th those are all things that I think have, have made it harder on him. But I also think that if the Steelers are going to be a good team, they need to have a good quarterback play. And right now, you would say that this quarterback play, regardless who's under center, has been well below the line. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for your time tonight. Let these people know what would you. How do you get a hold of yourself? You want to email you? Yeah, you can. Uh, if you follow my work, it's at triblab.com. It's T-R-I-B-L-I-B-E. Dot com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Kevin Gorman PGH. That's G O R M A N, just like Gorman's Pub. And uh, you can email me at kgorman at triplelive.com. And then once again, everybody, get on www.draft412.com. You get a hold of me at JT at draft412.com. Um, lots of football stuff on there right now with the, the draft prospects. We have that big party coming up, so get on there, get your tickets uh, for the. Um, 2024 NFL Draft Party. And like Kevin said, we had a great great response to what, how we put it on last year. And a couple of little things that we want to change are going to make it even better. So come on out. There'll be tons of food, tons of athletes. Um, we'll watch the draft together and we'll, we'll go through and talk about each draft pick. So Kevin, thank you. Um, hopefully the next time we talk. Thank you, Brandy, and thank you, Tim. And, and come back to come back to Borman's. I mean, this is a great place to drink, um, carry on. A lot of debauchery here, especially whenever um, Michael Urbaniak and Spanky are here. A lot of lot of stuff going on there. But uh, thank you for the talks, guys, and um, we're off the clock.